Hello, hello, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast project, currently untitled, probably going to turn out as either the Cement Soul podcast or the Cement Cast, simply. This will be a series of uh, pre-reviews, if you will, of these systems that I intend to talk about in the future, or of systems that have simply caught my fancy for the moment. It is important to note that I have not yet played these systems that I will be covering in the podcast format. These will be effectively impressions, my first impressions of a system right after I finish reading through it for the first time. Now for the first system that we will cover in this format, we will be going with Silver Bayonet. The Silver Bayonet. This is a Joseph A. McCullough system of uh, Frostgrave and Oathmark fame. Now at this point, Joe is a very accomplished author and game designer, so this came out to a fair bit of fanfare, I think. I know I was looking forward to it at the time of release, because I was also quite onto Turnip28 at the time. Now, I do think that the Silver Bayonet represents a sort of a moment in our scene where we have uh, sort of stumbled onto this Napoleonic fantasy horror subgenre, probably spearheaded by the uh, meteoric Instagram success of the Turnip28 style. Now, one thing that Joe's systems do quite well is provide a campaign structure for the specific uh, subgenre they are trying to cover. These are, well, this isn't a model agnostic system specifically, it does have an accompanying range. But from what I've seen of the range, it is not a comprehensive one. So there is uh, still that bit of a model agnosticism present in the system. For this episode, we will go through the book in the similar manner of uh, your traditional wargame review, where you flip through the book and talk about it, except I'll just be doing it through audio, of course. I have purchased the PDF. Uh, Let's just get this out of the way. It is quite a pricey PDF. And as far as I can tell... At least on Wargame Vault, there is no option to buy the book and get the PDF at the same time. Which is fine. I just feel that it is uh, quite pricey for what it is. Although it is a very nicely presented, and it does have a fair bit of stuff in it. The book kicks off with a little bit of fluff, detailing the uh, reasonings for the Napoleonic fantasy crossover setting. And it's fine as fluff goes, it's not something I pay particular attention to when I am am going through a Joe McCullough system, because the strength of his system usually lies in the mechanics, not so much in the fluff. I do appreciate that in the introduction bit, it does go out of its way to differentiate itself from other historicals, by saying, and I quote, that it is more Hollywood than history. All throughout the book, there is a decided focus on narrative play. There are sections later on that uh, teach the reader 
how to engage in the concept of narrative play, so to speak. The book to start off with lists what you need to play, all the standard things. Of note here is that it makes a suggestion for table size. It does make suggestions on a scenario per scenario basis as well, but right off the top it suggests a 2.5 by 2.5 foot table or up to a 3 by 3 table. I do think that is a nice accessible size for a game to be at, and this game does have shooting, so in most cases, in most cases, it will justify the 3x3. It also tells you upfront about the marker costs, as this game does use clue markers for its scenario design, and fatigue tokens for its melee systems. The dice used in Silver Bayonet are D10s, which is interesting, we'll get to that a bit more later. And it also uses a deck of cards, not the entire deck, mind you, on a scenario basis it will ask you to pull a, usually the face cards out, just for randomization. After the book lists all the basics, it hops straight into unit creation, which I think is quite good because uh, unit creation is the first step in giving the player a sense of agency in the game. And within the first page, it's already asking the player to, a, to select a nation. The game is a historical fantasy game, and it does involve real-life countries. In this case, Austria, Britain, France, Prussia, Russia, and Spain. Your choice of nation influences what soldiers you can recruit into your unit. Like uh, Prussia, for example, will get uh, access to tactician units. Austria gets access to uh, the special Dampier unit. In Silver Bayonet, your warband is called a unit, and it is led by an officer. Which is much like the wizard in Frostgrave. Right off the bat, you are given a few choices for customizing your officer. It is nowhere near as comprehensive as Frostgrave's customization options, especially because most of those options in Frostgrave were tied to the spell selection. There are spells, sort of, in Silver Bayonet, but they are nowhere near as comprehensive. Your officer can either be melee focused or shooting focused, they can be either faster or tougher, have higher courage, or be better at recruitment. After the officer section, the book does go into attributes a little bit, and then into equipment, like right into equipment, with descriptions and everything. After equipment, it goes into the rest of your unit. In the section, you are shown which countries can recruit which units. You can recruit Something that, for example, Austria, they can recruit Dampiers. If you're running a British unit, you can recruit a Dampier in lore from Austria at an increased cost. So there is quite a bit of swing room in your unit composition here. Of note, you can recruit an artillerist who is meant to man artillery, but there will not be any cannons per se. Artillery in this game are special scenario uh, emplacements that your artillerists can man. Now, I cannot speak as to the efficacy of these emplacements because I have not played the game, but for me personally, that would be a, uh, a dissuading factor from taking an artillerist. I probably would not take an artillerist because of that. 
but that is fine because there are all sorts of soldier types, including cavalrymen. And there are rules for cavalry. Cavalry are the biggest uh, individual models you can take into this game, and they will also be the meanest. They are limited scenario per scenario. I do believe not all the scenarios allow you to take your cavalry mounted. And if you do decide on taking a cavalry soldier, they will need to be modeled both on foot and on horse, which is kind of cool. There are also some supernaturally themed units, such as the Occultist and the Supernatural Investigator, because this game does have monsters. After the game has shown you how to set up your unit, it will then go on to the rules proper. The rules proper start off with defining checks and clue markers, which are, well, the clue markers are the baseline for the scenario design. They're sort of like the chests in Frostgrave, in that you go up to them and then start rolling dice. And then, of course, the book also describes the new check system. Now, the new check system works off to d10, as opposed to the contested d20 rolls of Frostgrave. Now, mind I'm comparing it to Frostgrave a lot, because Frostgrave is what I know. I know Stargrave is a lot like Frostgrave, and I know that Rangers of Shadow be Shadow Deep is basically also Frostgrave. I have not played much Oathmark, but that's a totally different uh, combat scale, so that's fine. So the checks in Silver Bayonet are resolved to d10s. Now, there are two kinds of dice involved in this 2d10s. One of the dice will be your power die. The second one of the dice will be your skill die. You roll them both, you add the results together, and you compare them to the check. If you meet or beat the target number, you pass the check. But it's important to know which die is which, because once you pass the check, you will usually use one of those numbers to get your final result. It's a very interesting way to flatten the quite swingy curve that Frostgrave had. Also, removing the contested rolls was an interesting decision. It will definitely speed the games up, because it's only one person checking, making a check. But it does remove a little bit of interactivity. The, the contested rolls were quite entertaining for my time with Frostgrave, because you're constantly rolling d20s. That made it quite fun. After describing the check, the book goes into describing the turn. And this is interesting because Silver Bayonet is a firmly I-Go-You-Go. It is modified I-Go-You-Go. You have a player with initiative who gets that initiative via check at the start of the round, and then the player with initiative, the primary player, moves half of their unit rounded down. After that, any monsters on the table will move, Rather, all monsters on the table will move. And then the secondary player, the player who has not gone yet, will activate all of their models on the table. After the secondary player has gone, whatever models the primary player has will then get the finish. This is a fairly simple activation system compared to Frostgrave's activation system which was a phased I-Go-You-Go, but with a sort of chain of command system where you would need to keep your uh, soldiers close to your wizard or your heritor. This is much more straightforward, and to a point I think it is much more solo-friendly. 
we'll touch on Solo in a bit. The initiative phase at the start of each turn is also used to generate unexpected events or unexpected encounters. Whenever a player rolls uh, double tens on their 2d10s, you get an unexpected event from the table. Whenever a player rolls a double one on their 2d10, that's when you get monsters wandering in, and they will be random monsters each time, again determined by the roll of the 2d10. This will be on top of the monsters that are rigged to appear in your scenarios. The book goes on to describe individual model activation, which is pretty standard two-tiered action style activation. The, fig- the model moves and then the model does an action. Interestingly, the game lets you shoot and then move, and attacking is tied to moving into proximity. So you can shoot, move, do a melee attack, and then end your turn. However, if you make a melee attack via moving into proximity, the move to attack action, it will end your turn prematurely. Of note here also are the rules for falling. I think these are some of the cleanest falling rules I have read, although it does not cover falling from like the middle of a jump. If a figure falls, it will do so at the start of the jump every time. The specifics of shooting involve loading and reloading, since this is a Napoleonic-era game, all the shots have to be reloaded after they are made. You can carry multiple guns on one figure if you would like to, but you can only reload one weapon at a time. If a figure does not move, it can reload for free. So you can reload and shoot if you do not move, effectively letting you shoot every turn so long as you stay still. This does mean that you have to keep track of which figures are reloading when the situation arises, and the book makes a suggestion to use a cotton wool. Melee combat, as mentioned earlier, happens with proximity, and ends the unit's turn. Not only that, but each time a figure engages in melee combat, they get a fatigue token. Each fatigue token debuffs the figure so that any subsequent melees or even shooting engagements have a higher chance of it ending up dead. Whenever a figure is attacked, either in melee or in shooting, it has an option to react either with a retaliatory strike back or via backing off. In shooting's case, this is either return fire or die for cover. These reaction steps are important because with the removal of the contested d20 roll, you have removed the reactive player's interaction in the rolling step of the attack. So provided that their model survives the engagement, they can then have their agency. The game still does have critical hits and critical failures as well, and as usual, they are still optional rules. After shooting and melee are described, we move on to cavalry. Now, I quite like the rules for cavalry here. They are kept quite simple. Simple bonuses to the model in melee combat, a little bit of debuffs while shooting, 
and some explicit rules for mounting and dismounting. If I were to play in a campaign of Silver Bayonet, I would definitely be taking a cavalry unit. A cavalry soldier, rather. I'm just particularly fond of the idea of something coming on and off a horse. I've seen it done in the Middle Earth battle game, but not in much else other than that. There are also terror checks here, which are made almost always in relation to monsters from what I can see. It's a pretty basic sanity system, you just make a check and then compare it to a table. And then you have the fate pool, which uh, are basically your rerolls. You will have fate pool for power dice, skill dice, and for the monster dice. I forgot to bring this up earlier, but... The power dice, for example, when you're rolling the 2d10 in a melee engagement and you win the check, you check the power dice to see how much damage you do. If you're using a more dexterous kind of weapon, you use the skill dice instead. It's quite clever, the, the 2d10 with uh, two separate dice. That's quite a clever system. Now, each dice in this fateful will let you either re-roll a dice in your roll, negate damage from any source, or do a quick reload. It's always nice to have rerolls and swingy systems, and this does look a little bit less swingy than Frostgrave, but do not quote me on that, I have not done the math or played the game. After the section on the fate dice, the book goes into monster actions or the monster AI, and it does keep this quite simple. It's a three-step flowchart, which boils down to, does the monster have a gun? If so, shoot it. Otherwise, make a beeline for melee. Well, there's also reloading, but that's basically what it is. And it brings me to the point of AI in miniatures games. Solo AI, not necessarily solo AI, but just the monster behavior in general. Now, in a game like this, where it is adversarial by default, the AI might be better served by being a bit more explicit. But here's the thing, the Silver Bayonet is trying to build itself as a narrative experience for most. So it foregoes that explicitness in favor of fostering that narrative mindset TM. There is also the monster die from the Fate Pool that lets the player control the monster's target priority to a degree. Now, I think this kind of behavior is frankly all you'll need for a solo game. Like, just behavioral suggestions. I think getting caught up in more complex flowcharts, like the one in the one-page rules, the solo rules for one-page rules. I am not a fan of those rules. Those rules do not feel good to play. I think going to uh, programmatic with monster AI can really bog the game down for the solo player. Although I do also acknowledge that some people want more explicit AI. That it's difficult for some people to make an objective decision when basically playing themselves. In any case, I think what Silver Bayonet uses is perfect for its purposes. And that covers the basic rules of the game. 
Now, at first blush, to me, it comes off as streamlined Frostgrave. You have ditched the command and control activation scheme, you have ditched the contested d20 rolling, and you have ditched the quite extensive spell system. Now, of course, you have also added on quite a few things on top in the form of the soldiers, because there are a lot of soldier options here, and there are also quite a bit more equipment options in terms of, well, weapons, things you use to kill monsters in particular. There are two tiers of uh, monster-killing ammunition. You've got your silver, you've got your cold iron, you got your salt, you got your holy symbols for fighting them demons, and then you've got all the guns those go into. Well, not the holy, not the holy symbol. You just hold the holy symbol. There's differentiation between musket, pistol, rifle, and blunderbuss, and there's also differentiation between just regular hand weapons and uh, fencing weapons, as well as heavy and improvised weapons. So it's choosing to differentiate itself both on the macro and on the micro scale, which I think is a response to criticism of Stargrave just being Frostgrave in space, which is a fair criticism. Now, just looking at these rules, it is funny because it's something that makes me want to play it, but it's something that feels like it's made for solo for some reason. Probably because the activation scheme resembles even Sorensen's uh, Five Parsecs from Home or Five Leagues from the Borderlands, that uh, phased out I Go You Go, that is a very Five Leagues slash Five Parsecs. But also just the the focus on monster killing, like all these fancy bits of equipment that are meant to be used on monsters, that to me at a glance that informs me that the game is about killing monsters. But it is not solo by design, it is adversarial by design. Which brings us to discussing the campaign. Now we know from Frostgrave existing, from Frostgrave Ghost Archipelago existing, from Stargrave existing, though I cannot speak on Stargrave as I have not played Stargrave, I haven't even looked at the bloody rulebook, but I know for a fact that Frostgrave has a good campaign. Now, starting from the top, I think one of the most basic reasons Frostgrave campaigns work is that they have defined endpoints. Whether it be the ultimate spell or the the one piece, the 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 penultimate map piece in Rose Archipelago, I forget what it is called. Here in Silver Bayonet, there is an end goal, but it is not a diegetic in the same way the ultimate spell or the ultimate map is in the previous incarnations of Frostgrave. And by diegetic, I mean it is not baked into the game's lore, or at least not as much. So you win a campaign by hitting 25 power level, power rank. Now, power rank is just increased by leveling up your dudes. So it is quite a linear way to win 
and not at all what I would have expected from a Joe McCullough piece. I do appreciate that Power Rank is also used for the uh, the anti-snowballing system. There is a unit differential system and bonus experience points if you end up with or like really big Power Rank differentials. The imbalance between warbands is always a design consideration whenever you go for making a campaign, but I also would have really appreciated a more diegetic win condition. It's a funny thing to fixate on, I appreciate that, but it's just something, it's a pet peeve of mine. I think most campaign designs do not take into account finishing the campaign. Now, moving on, we go on to the scenarios. Now, these, these main ones, there's ten of them. That's quite a lot. These are all meant to be adversarial scenarios, but they are written like solo scenarios. It's very strange. They're all goal-oriented, as scenarios tend to be. But just the way they're done, it's like the, the bit of lore at the start of each one feels very... Uh, like, once this goes down, it will not happen again, so to speak. So, now you're set up with this quite typical, there is a monster or a weird thing happening here, please deal with it. But, then you have two warbands dealing with it at the same time, and they are also shooting at each other? That, that, that just feels a tiny bit dissonant to me. Like, I don't think, because, look, in Frostgrave... You have loot. There is treasure on the table. That treasure, and the fact that you have to drag it physically off the table, will get people into this, like, real goblin brain state of mind that fosters the adversarial atmosphere very well. In Silver Bayonet's case, you have these clues. Scenario, so you're, well, you're competitively investigating. It doesn't make quite as much sense to me. Because the sensible thing to do here, in most cases, is to gang up on the monster. Now, what this system brings to mind is Hunt Showdown, which is a Battle Royale video game. It is quite a niche and hardcore Battle Royale video game. Hunt Showdown also works off these, like, real smoky, single-shot, slow-to-reload cowboy guns, Hunt Showdown also has a focus on killing monsters while other people are also trying to kill those monsters and you're also killing each other. That's very Silver Bayonet. But a Silver Bayonet does not set up this like reason for the hunters for the for the units for the officers leading these units to covet the investigation, the act of investigation and monster killing. So much that they would go out of their way to fight the other player. It's a very specific thing, but to me it's important. Especially because this game also has a solo mode. Rather, it has four scenarios that are meant to be played solo slash co-op. If you play it co-op, you have one officer with half... Rather, you have two officers with half of their recruitment points in the same team. It's a very interesting way to play, I think. Now, here's the thing. 
the solo scenarios, they're a little bit wordier, but I think with a bit of tweaking, you could easily play the adversarial scenarios in a solo way, which is sort of the design point here, I think, because this book has a couple of sections dedicated to giving you tips on designing your own scenarios, on designing your own monsters, even. That is how it tries to foster this sense of narrative play, by via the sense of rules creation. Very similar to how Squad Hammer tries to, sen- to foster the sense of narrative play. This does it a bit more on the nose, of course, by telling you that, hey, guess what, you can also homebrew your own rules. Now, most veteran campaign players, like people who specialize in playing campaign games, they will just do this naturally. Because campaign play is, by nature, super narrative-leaning. It is imbalanced, it generates emergent narratives, and it is generally not a good place for a competitive player to be in. But for somebody new, or someone coming in from a more competitive mindset, I think this more explicit, you can also make your own rules, sort of wording within the book is really important to have. Because some people, they will not do a thing unless the book tells them to do a thing. It's really frustrating, but that's just how some people are. So, here we have an adversarial system, with a focus on a PvE aspect, that is designed and ostensibly marketed as competitive-slash-adversarial first. If I were to play Silver Bayonet, let's say for a review, I would do it solo, definitely solo. I could probably sucker someone into playing it adversarial-style, with the campaign rules, but I kind of don't want to. I kind of want to play it solo and see where it goes. Because it just feels more fun to play it that way. Because this is a horror title. Let's not forget. It is horror pulp Napoleonic. And I do think that horror works best either solo or co-op. And I also think that narrative play can work best either solo or co-op. Because removing that element of competition is much more conducive to a creative mindset, in my opinion. Now, let's cap this off with a few more numbers. This game has 10 adversarial scenarios, which from the looks of it, can be very easily modified into solo scenarios. This game has 4 solo scenarios. These scenarios are meant to be played in order, much like Joe's other solo design, Rangers of Shadowdeep, which is very good, by the way. The game has 19 monsters with a little blurb at the end for helping you create your own monster. It is almost definitely going to get expansions, and one of those expansions is almost definitely going to be solo-focused. Well, I say almost definitely, but it would probably depend on the sales of the first book. I do quite like what I am seeing from this first impression. It is a game that I would definitely play. 
but I would probably play it with my Turnip 28 miniatures, cause the basic Napoleonic aesthetics don't really do much for me. There has to be like a real characterful twist to it. And Turnip 28 is precisely that. However, if someone were to stick done-up models in my face and ask me for a game, I would definitely say yes. Probably not a campaign though. Campaigns take a bit of time. So that is my first uh, halfway drunken ramble. I am three glasses of wine deep into this first audio review. It's for a system that I am on the fence about reviewing on the channel. And I am still on the fence after doing this. Uh, the peak time for reviewing it has definitely passed, but that will not stop me from making a video if I like something enough. Hopefully my ramblings have been useful in informing your own purchasing decision around the Silver Bayonet. It is quite an expensive PDF. I do think it is a little bit pricey for the content, especially compared to one of Ivan's books, for example especially in terms of solo play, and also it's doing that like Osprey thing where everything's like double spaced like a fucking thesis to probably pad out the book length and make it heavier, but it does make it way more readable, which I appreciate. Anyway, I'm quite drunk, so I am going to stop this recording right now, and we will call that episode one of the podcast. Thank you very much for watching, for listening. This is an audio content. Until next time.